Today's Bible reading is from Psalm 9. This can be found on page 539 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 9, beginning at verse 1. I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart, I will tell you of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. That I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net that they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy, The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. This is the word of the Lord. For the Bible reading. Being thankful... It's a good thing, isn't it? Uh, so, I um, don't know if you can read this, but the Harvard Health Research publication wrote that gratitude, being thankful, is strongly and cons- consistently associated with greater happiness. Now, the Forbes magazine, it encourages people to sit down every day and think of five to ten things that make them thankful, that they're thankful for. And our kids... I don't know if you can see this. Um, I don't know if you've seen this book before, but Jonathan was given one of these books, um, and it's all about being grateful. So this dog here, uh, she's really thankful for her scooter. Uh, She's really thankful for being able to play soccer with her dad. She's really thankful for a warm blanket on a cold night and for the cake that grandma made for her. It's a very sweet book. Um, It's good to be thankful, isn't it? But what does it actually look like? I mean, is it really possible to be thankful? For example, when things are going hard, 
you know, can thankfulness in those moments, can that be faked and even superficial, you know, ignoring the reality, ignoring the fact that things are happening to you that you don't want to happen? Uh, today we'll be thinking about thankfulness from the Bible. Psalm 9, it's a song of thanksgiving. Uh, listen to how it begins again. David says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. Here's a psalm that says thanks. Uh, but I don't know about you, I found this psalm quite tricky. Uh, you know, when Evie was reading it just now, were you thinking in your head, what's, what's going on here? That's what I've been thinking all week. Because even though this is a psalm of thanks, it doesn't always feel thankful, does it? I mean, it starts off with thanks, but then there are times in this psalm where David's crying out to God for help. There are times when he's asking God to do something for him, like at the very end. Now, can all this be thankfulness? I think it's really good to wrestle with tricky parts of the Bible. It reminds us that we're not as clever as we might think we are. And, you know, kids, you know, it's really important to know that adults don't have all the answers to the Bible. You know, we're still learning about God just like you are. So how about we pray that God would help us today? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word here so that we can trust and love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the last uh, few weeks, we've looked at Psalm 6, Psalm 7, Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 6, if you remember, was a song of tears. David was crying out to God for help, uh, lamenting to God. That was the technical word. Psalm 7 was kind of similar. He's trying to trust in God to, to be his refuge. Uh, but Psalm 8 last week, uh, which Sam brought to us, was quite different, wasn't it? David was praising God for his majestic creation of the whole world and of us. And Psalm 9, our passage this morning, it kind of has elements of all these three psalms. There's crying out to God, there's asking God for things, there's trying to trust God, there's praising God. All these things under this umbrella of giving thanks. Now, the other really interesting thing about Psalm 9 is, is that it's an acrostic poem. It's an acrostic poem. Kids, I don't know, do you know what an acrostic poem is? Have a look at this slide. It's, I think this is really cool. So... Uh, in the original Hebrew language, the first two verses of this psalm, they all started with the equivalent, you know, their first letter, their A. And then the next two verses started with their letter B, and so forth and so forth. I think this is fascinating. And so if you um, take out your booklets and look at your outlines, uh, I've tried to come up with my own acrostic poem to help us understand Psalm 9. And it spells out, Thank you, Lord with um, an abbreviated U. I hope that doesn't, you know, annoy you too much. Um, but there we go. And, you know, if you want to fill out the blanks as you go along, I'll, I'll give you the answers. Um, but the first letter of this acrostic poem is T, you know, to the Lord. Uh, have a listen again to verses 1 and 2. David says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing the praises of your name, O Most High. David's thanks here, it's directed to God, isn't it? The person he's saying thank you to is God. Now, who wants to learn a little bit of Cantonese right now? Um, kids, do you want to learn some Chinese Cantonese? So, did you know that there are actually two ways to say thank you in Cantonese? 
There's two different kinds of thank yous, if you will. The first way is kind of for something small. So for example, um, you know, if Micah opened the door for me, then I would say, Mgoi. Can you try it? Mgoi. Mgoi. But for something big, so let's say, you know, grandma gives you a lot of money in a little red packet for your birthday. That's quite big, isn't it? So you'd say instead, Doze. Doze. Um, there's a big thank you and then there's a small thank you. Now, what kind of thank you do you think David is saying here to God? Is it a small thank you? You know, did God let David borrow his pen or something like that? It's a big thank you, isn't it? It's a big thank you. And we see this in the next letter, H. David thanks God for helping him from his enemies and from wicked people. And God has made them no more. They are no more. Uh, I mentioned the other week that if you read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, you'll see that David had lots of enemies, lots of enemies. And one of these enemies uh, was his best friend's dad, who also happened to be his wife's dad. Uh, David married his best friend's sister. There's a story there. Uh, and their dad also happened to be the king of Israel, King Saul. And he hated David. And he kind of hated him for no real reason. You know, David was just more popular than Saul, so um, Saul got a bit jealous. And so he chased David around the country. You know, imagine being chased around Australia by the Australian army. You know, imagine that there are drones and helicopters flying around trying to chase you, trying to look for you. That was kind of David's life. And not only were these enemies of David's, you know, serious enemies, powerful people, they were also wicked. Verse 5. And there's a particular story in 1 Samuel chapter 22. King Saul has 85 priests and their families executed, uh, slaughtered. You know, these were unarmed, innocent people killed by this king all because they helped David. You know, that's pure evil, isn't it? Uh, here in verse 9, uh, verse 5, sorry, of Psalm 9, uh, David uses the word nations in parallel with the wicked. And this is actually a reference to another psalm, Psalm 2, which is a really important psalm. And I've got the start of the psalm here. Uh, psalm 2 begins with this picture of the nations. And it says, Why do the nations conspire, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's a picture of the peoples of the world coming together to fight against God and to fight against God's anointed. This is important because David is actually God's anointed king. God has anointed David to be his king. So that's helpful for us understanding what's going on in Psalm 9. These wicked people who are enemies of David, they're not just David's enemies, they're God's enemies too, just like these nations in Psalm 2. Uh, but God, David's saying, has made these enemies no more. Uh, verse 6 Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies, David says. God has protected and saved David from his enemies. I don't know what part of David's life he's reflecting on. Maybe it's he's the king now, and he's reflecting on how God has taken him from being the shepherd boy, defeating all his enemies, and now he's the king of Israel. And so the next letter, K, David says to the Lord, Lord, you are a kind king. Now, kids, I don't know if you've seen this symbol before. Um, when I talked about, when I, when I went to school, they talked about this safety house thing a lot. I don't know if 
adults remember this or not, I was taught at school that if I'm walking home by myself and someone dangerous is following me, someone bad, and if I saw this sign on a house, I could trust that this was a safe house for me to go in. You know, I could it'd be a house where they'd you know, care for me, protect me, they'd call my parents so that they could pick me up, maybe they'd call the police if something bad was happening. It's a safety house, a refuge. Now imagine I'm walking home from school and um, these bullies are chasing me. They're chasing me and I see this sign in front of a house and so I run into the house and imagine that this was the house, the parliament house, the house of the prime minister, if you will, with all the security guards, with machine guns. You know, how safe would that be? That's kind of what David's saying here, that God is the king, much more powerful than the prime minister. Uh, verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. Verse 8, he rules the world, the whole world, and he rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. In other words, God is a just ruler. God is a just ruler. Wicked people can't get away with it, ultimately. God's not corrupt. You know, remember Micah's story about how, um, you know, people were paying bribes to get a motorbike's license. Uh, wicked people can't pay God off. They can't get away with their evil because God is a righteous judge. That's what the word righteous means. He judges justly with justice. And because of this, then God is a refuge for the oppressed. Those who are oppressed by others, those who are taken advantage of, those who are bullied, they can find their safety and refuge in God. Uh, verse 10 is a really cool verse, really a remarkable verse. It says, Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. What a verse. Now, those who seek God, God will never forsake them. And that's why David sings praises to the Lord in verse 11. Because God, in verse 12, does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. What a comfort. God does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Uh, kids, uh, I know that you guys looked at the book of Exodus last term. Do you remember early in the story of Exodus when the Egyptians had made Israel into the sla their slaves? Israel cries to God for help, right? Do you remember that? They, they cry to God for help. And remember that God hears their cries. It tells us that God heard their cries and he cared for them. And he made plans to rescue them. This is the God who rules over the whole world as a kind king. And so David cries out to this God. It's our next letter, L. Um, whoop, gave you away an extra one. Um, and so I had to fit it all in. So David cries, lift me from death to life. And we're looking at verses 13 to 14. And notice in these verses the two gates, the key to understanding these two verses. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, verse 13. Verse 14, that I may declare your praise in the gates of daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is another word for God's city. So David's crying out to God here to lift him up from the gates of death, from hell, up to the gates of life in heaven with God, in God's city. It's really interesting because, you know, even though David's singing praises to God, even though his heart is full of thanks to God, here he's also crying to God for help and mercy. I think this is worth thinking about because 
being thankful doesn't mean that everything has to be all right in life, that all the pieces of your life are together. We can give thanks to God and at the same time still cry to Him to carry us through, carry us, you know, like David, from death to life. You know, maybe that's why David chose to write an acrostic poem. He couldn't connect his thoughts together and so he just kind of forced them together in an acrostic poem. You know, life with God isn't always straightforward. And thankfulness doesn't mean faking a smile and pretending that everything is all right. You can thank God and still cry to Him for help. Our next letter, O. Uh, the wicked are ensnared by their own deeds. The wicked fall into their own traps. Um, and remember how we said that nations and wicked are sometimes used synonymously uh, in the Psalms. I think that's what's going on in verses 15 and 16 too. The nations have fallen into, pit, into the pit they dug. Uh, they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. God's judgment sometimes is to give people over to their own wickedness. You know, when people say to God, I don't need you, God, I don't, I don't want you, I don't want your ways, I don't want your word, they always end up hurting themselves and each other. And we kind of saw that, didn't we? And as we looked at Genesis, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel. When you cut God off from your life, the God who is the kind king, then other people, well, they're no longer partners in creation. They're people to be conquered. They're opportunities to exploit for your own advantage. They're threats to your own success and happiness and comfort. They're obstacles to climb over. Because the nations have rejected God, because humanity has left God and His ways, His good ways, our world is full of injustice, isn't it? Injustice is a human invention. That's what we're good at. That's what we're known for. But God, on the other hand, He's known, verse 16, by His acts of justice. If humans are good at injustice, then God is very good at justice. Uh, we'll do the last two letters together. Those who ignore God will go down to the realm of the dead, verse 17, but... God does not ignore those who fear Him. Our translation here uses the word forget, but I think the meaning is actually stronger. To forget God here, it's not like forgetting to bring your umbrella or something like that. It's actually ignoring Him, isn't it? It's cutting Him out of your life. It's saying in your heart, I don't need you, God. I don't really care that you're not part of my life. And friends, that's what the Bible calls sin. In verse 17 here, it's quite sobering, isn't it? Because it says that if you don't want anything to do with the God who gives life, then you'll end up in the realm of the dead, in hell. But, verse 18 says that God will never ignore the needy. It's the same word, ignore, here. Those who cry out to God for help, those who hope in Him, those who trust in Him, He won't ignore you. Uh, the other word that I think could be translated a little bit better is the word terror in verse 20. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they're only mortal. If you had a commentary or something like that, and you'll see that the original Hebrew word is actually the word that is usually translated for us, fear. And fear in the Bible has a much broader range of meaning. So, for example, um, here's a 
pretty famous verse in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Um, this is really helpful for us understanding what's going on in verse 20 in Psalm 9. See, true wisdom begins by actually knowing your place before God. It begins by fearing God. Not necessarily being terrified of God, although many people in the Bible, when they encountered God face to face, were rightly terrified. But it's more than that. It's reverence. It's humility. It's knowing your place. It's knowing that you're just a mortal. You're not supreme. You're not the all-knowing, all-powerful ruler of the world. And that's where David ends this song of thanks. It's a plea for God to help the peoples of the world know their place before Him. And so, do you know your place before God? Do you know that you're not the eternal God? You're not all-knowing, all-powerful. You're a mortal human being. See, friends, this is the first step to true wisdom. That's the first step to a right relationship with God. You know that no one else talks more about judgment in the Bible than Jesus. And he does this because he lovingly is warning people with tears often. And what's really profound is that the one who's warning people about judgment is actually the judge himself. So Paul says in Acts 17 that God raised Jesus up from the dead so that he can judge the world one day on that final day. Judgment is as real as the resurrection of Jesus. And as we read Psalm 9, we have to ask the question, where do you stand with Jesus, this judge? But this psalm also promises that those who trust in Jesus, he's not your judge your refuge. He's not the one who will condemn you. He's the one who will save you. Now you might be thinking, from what? Who are our enemies? You know, we don't have some king chasing us around the country. The Bible keeps saying that our ultimate enemies are our own sin and death and the devil. And the Lord Jesus has defeated these enemies on the cross and brought us from life, uh, from death to life. Uh, next week we're looking at Colossians, but here's a sneak peek for you. When you were dead in your sins, Paul says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is our victory from sin, death, and the devil. Jesus rules our world in righteousness. He is the judge, and the wicked will have to answer before him. But for us who trust in him, we've been forgiven. Our sins have been paid for. So we know that we're safe from that judgment. Jesus isn't the one who condemns us, but our refuge, our safety house, if you will. And that's why we can be thankful even as we struggle in life, even as we cry out to him for help in the here and now. So let's pray. Lord God, Thank you for being strong and kind. Thank you that you rule this world in justice. Thank you that you save us in your kindness. Help us, Lord, in our struggles. In Jesus' name, amen.